Is it more, what do you expect? Look who his parents are. Or, what do you expect? Look where he came from. What molds us into the people we grow into? Is it our DNA? The combination of generations and generations of genealogy combining into a new creation? Or does that even matter when your influences are based on who you are around most? Do we mimic? Or do we just know? Is ours learned behavior? Is it our genetic makeup? More importantly, perhaps, can we change how it influences us? Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Believe it or not, we use the theory of behaviorism on a regular basis on most people we meet. Everyone has their own agenda. Everyone wants others to get behind their agenda. Whether a parent, teacher, politician, a coach, a career in sales, even a comment or a meme on social media, we are either employing behaviorism or being swayed by it ourselves. Behaviorism is basically the theory that human behavior can be manipulated by terms of conditioning without appeal to thoughts or feelings. Behaviorists believed human beings are shaped entirely by their external environment. If you alter a person's environment, you will alter his or her thoughts, feelings, and behavior. An oversimplified example might be, uh, think rewards and punishments. For example, if we reward good behavior and punish bad behavior, we are looking for a desired outcome. And behaviorists believe that if consistently practiced, the behavior will continue. If you think of your childhood, did you ever experience this example? Um, if you collected enough smiley face stickers, you'd get a prize or a reward. Uh, if you behaved outside of the rules, maybe recess was taken away, or you simply didn't get the piece of candy. The same principles still apply to adults. Reward programs with a promise to get free coffee, or a surprise if you just hold on till the end. We get instant gratification when our peers hit that like button on our social media posts, or not gonna lie, when someone openly declares that they enjoy the Bag of Bones podcast by following. <laughs> I just beam. And then I'm willing to continue to spend the hours and care it takes to keep delivering just in case someone else will also hit that subscribe button. I've been behavioralized. No shame. So the question becomes, how did we figure out this human trait? How much is acceptable before it becomes trauma or brainwashing. While I can't slip into the full study of comparing genealogy versus behaviorism in this episode, I would like to thank Annabelle Bergman for suggesting the topic and the more specific topic that continues to wage debate in the psychological communities even today. 
here's your warning. This episode is going to dip into some experiments and studies that may be considered unethical and to some downright offensive. I will not be offended if you need to skip this one. I completely understand. But if you are ready to see how the lines of ethical study was crossed to gain data, warning again, these studies involve children, and then see how it taught future generations of researchers about unlocking a small window of the psyche, let us begin. Side note, in doing this research, I have to admit that it was quick for me to be upset with the treatment of these children. In today's time, you just wouldn't conduct these types of experiments with a good conscience. That being said, I honestly believe that the doctors that created and implemented these studies were not doing them for malicious intent. Even though my words or inflections betray otherwise, I do believe that they were thinking of the best interest of future generations, as most doctors and psychologists have to believe. Hopefully, with this preface, it might make this history a little easier to digest. So get ready to meet the children of Davenport, Iowa, in what has become known as the Monster Study of 1939. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. As a full-time author and amateur historian, I'm out here traveling alone across the United States. I like to know that I can travel safely. That's why I love Damsel in Defense. From tasers to mace, I can be confident knowing that I can defend myself, allowing the world of travel to be open to me. Damsel in Defense offers a variety of self-defense items to choose from, and you can decide what is best for your comfort level. And now I can feel safe while out and about, in my truck, and even at home in my camper. I love this company's mission and dedication to quality. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, I can offer you this exclusive link and you can take control of your safety too. Check out their full product line at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. In 1936, Dr. Wendell Johnson was working at the University of Iowa. He was curious about learned behavior and was interested to try an experiment of his own. Dr. Johnson had a speech impediment. He stuttered and would recall that it caused him great embarrassment and difficulty. This would encourage him to specialize in speech pathology as an adult. He wanted to discover if stuttering was a learned behavior or biology, nature or nurture. He specifically sought out the University of Iowa in order to further pursue his area of studying, saying, quote, I became a speech pathologist because I needed one, end quote. The department students, all focused on stuttering, were all conducting studies at the time mostly on each other and other willing participants. They would think up a new theory and then try it out on the group. Johnson's team took on the premise that if stuttering was a learned behavior, it could be unlearned. They needed the data to back up the theory. 
he set out to prove that if any child could be made to stutter, then it didn't stem from a psychological defect. It could be proven that it was a learned or conditioned response. Side note, he didn't stop to think that stuttering could be conditioned from trauma, even though he himself suffered from it and recalls it with traumatic clarity. And, spoiler alert, he did in fact create stutterers out of non-stutterers, but forgot to cure them of it again. Twenty-two orphans aged five to fifteen were chosen. Some had a stutter, and some were quote-unquote normal speakers. They were divided in half, with the stutterers mixed in. However, one of the groups were labeled normal speakers, while the others were labeled stutterers. So, imagine that you were told you had a disability every day, when prior to that, no such word or thought had crossed your mind. That's kind of what's happening here. Then there was another set of children. None of them had a speech impediment, but they were divided into two groups. One group was praised for their beautiful speech and enunciation, while the other group was told that they could hear a stutter coming on and they needed to remedy it immediately. The researchers of Dr. Johnson's study, who was mostly his 22-year-old graduate student, Mary Tudor, would meet with these children at the orphanage where they lived on a regular basis to evaluate their speech. In the normal group, they would be praised at how wonderfully they were doing, stutter or no. And in the stutterer group, they would be cautioned not to speak unless they could do it right. Or she might say something like, if you just keep practicing, no one will ever notice that you speak poorly. Other times, she would encourage the stutterers by saying, quote, You'll outgrow the stuttering and you will be able to speak even much better than you are speaking now. Pay no attention to what others say about your speaking ability, for undoubtedly they do not realize that this is only a phase. End quote. But for the non-stuttering group that they were trying to make stutter, she would say, quote, The staff has come to the conclusion that you have a great deal of trouble with your speech. You have many symptoms of a child who is beginning to stutter. You must try and stop yourself immediately. Do anything to keep from stuttering. End quote. They studied the impact from counseling from week to week. Those who received praise didn't really change much. One or two, I think they said, was able to reduce his speech impediment. However, the stuttering group were impacted in such painful, detrimental ways. If you recall, not all of the children in this stuttering group had a stutter, but by the time the study was over, five of the six children developed speech problems and some of the stuttering group withdrew and stopped speaking altogether. A five-year-old tutor would write about only after her second visit, saying, quote, It was very difficult to get her to speak, although she spoke freely the month before. End quote. A nine-year-old girl, she would write about, quote, held her hand or arm over her eyes most of the time, practically refuses to talk. End quote. The study lasted for six months, from January to May of 1939. 
The results and the data gained from the study was considered groundbreaking in the field of stuttering, as no one before had ever studied the pathology of stuttering so exclusively. But they believed it was conclusive in only that stuttering is proven to be conditional, not biological, and because of that, those who were part of the group that didn't stutter, but were told that they did, or were getting ready to, did start taking on those patterns. Mary Tudor's notes would say, quote, All the children in this group showed overt behavioral changes that were in the direction of the types of inhibitive, sensitive, embarrassed reactions shown by many adult stutterers in reaction to their speech. There was a tendency for them to become less talkative, end quote. There were also outward appearances. They did not stutter when they spoke, but they acted like it. For example, they would not make eye contact, cover their mouth, shuffle their feet, snap their fingers, whisper, gulped, and clenched their jaws. Again, I don't think that they had a malicious intent by conducting the studies as Johnson was focused on finding a cure for speech problems, but he didn't think of the long-term effects on his participants. While they were in the thick of it, they were just focused on their singular goal. It wasn't until later that one of the researchers would write in her notes, quote, I believe that in time they will recover, but we certainly made a definite impression on them, end quote. However, in the meantime, the children's schoolwork and confidence suffered. Some of the children began refusing to recite in class. It wasn't called the monster study because monsters were used to startle or frighten the children. It was called that because of the damage it had done. Future speech pathology students discovering the study and discussing it in their classes, they themselves refer to it as such. And even though Dr. Johnson was also conducting similar studies on willing adults, news was just getting out that the Nazis were conducting their own round of horrific testing. So Johnson's study results were buried for a long time and weren't published. Johnson was warned that if he published the study, his career and reputation would be ruined. He knew the pain that came from being told that he was a stutterer, and he sanctioned the study anyway. One of Johnson's students would say of his mentor, quote, I have to assume it was because he firmly believed that it would serve a greater good, and that any damage would be temporary and reversible. The student followed up with saying, quote, He never talked about the study, so all I can do really is guess, end quote. The children of the monster experiment didn't know they were part of a study. They were minors, and no one was looking out for their best interest. Sixty years later, sixty years, students of the speech pathology learned of the study and it was finally published. In 2001, the San Jose Mercury News published a series of articles about the experiment and it opened up the discussion about ethical boundaries in the name of science. Some would argue that it was the price you would have to be willing to pay in order to extract the data necessary for advancement and others would argue that the damage caused wasn't worth the dry, inconclusive data. The University of Iowa issued a formal apology for the study, and soon the readers began to recognize themselves in the news stories. At least three of the original participants sued the university for emotional distress and fraudulent misrepresentation, 
and there were others who were descendants of participants who sued the school on their family's behalf. They won the settlement, and the university paid out over $1 million to the victims and their estates. In 1965, Dr. Wendell Johnson died, still believing his initial theories. He continued his studies and research for the rest of his career. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. If you made it through the last experiment, buckle up, because this one is likely going to infuriate you. As usual, let me give you some advance warning. This has to do with a nine-month-old and his conditioned responses around fear. I know. I can already feel my shoulder muscles tightening up. It was not clear how the acquisition of the child came about, whether the mother didn't know, it's believed she worked at the hospital, or whether she was paid, or if the child was abandoned. However, the child to whom they referred to as Little Albert would undergo tests that would last for about three months. They were documented on film, but the study would be inconclusive for a couple reasons, which I'll come back to. This test was to acquire data to prove the theory of classical conditioning and stimulus generalization. The plan, Dr. John B. Watson and his graduate student, Rosalie Rayner, were going to instill a new phobia in a healthy, emotionally stable child. Watson, and yes, if you were wondering, the rumor is that this is the real-life Watson that Arthur Conan Doyle used in his Sherlock Holmes series. Anyway, he believed that fear was an emotion that was present in every child at birth. But with additional stimuli, it became a learned response, as children are often afraid of assortment of things. He observed that fear can be represented in infants from crying, rapid breathing, closing their eyes, or sudden jumps. Watson's inspiration came mainly from the studies done by Ivan Pavlog, who conditioned his patient, a dog, to salivate when a bell was rung. Watson believed that psychology should not be considered a science of the mind, but that of behavior of an individual, not their consciousness. He didn't believe that a person's mental state had anything to do with anything, but everything stemmed from external stimuli and their reactions to such. And if his theories on fear didn't get your external receptors firing as a bonus— 
This is how he views love. Watson believes that this too is external. It only comes as an infant from being stroked, patted, or tickled, thus bringing about smiles and signs of affection. And since it's usually the mother that's in the child's face all the time, he becomes conditioned to respond to her. He believes that love or quote-unquote affectionate feelings that come up later in life all have been associated with that initial stimuli from their mother. Watson is also one of the leaders of the dangers of loving or showing too much affection to your children movement. His book, Psychological Care of Infant and Child, published in 1928, warns parents that since society will not comfort children as they grow into adulthood, by loving the child too much at home will give them unrealistic expectations. Therefore, you should treat your child as a young adult, making sure not to coddle them too much. He would say, quote, All of the weaknesses, reserves, fears, cautions, and inferiorities of our parents are stamped into us with sledgehammer blows, end quote. Meaning, we can blame our parents for enforcing all of our emotional deficits as they alone are responsible for the environment their child was allowed to develop in. Side note, did I mention that he wanted a 20-year time frame where all pregnancies would be exterminated so he could present a unified child-rearing process based on the nurture-not-nature theories? <laughs> yeah, there's that too. Well, this leads us to his actual experiment. It's 1920 and will become known for one of the most controversial studies in the psychological field. It is forever known as the Little Albert Experiment. Watson created a baseline by filming the introduction of several things to a child. A rat, a bunny, a dog, a monkey. Side note, if you've watched any of the film, you'll be equally upset at his treatment of the animals in the experiment. He's an equal opportunity egomaniac. For good measure, they also exposed the child to cotton, creepy masks, and fire. Little Albert showed no fear and many times no interest in the animals paraded in front of him and put in his face. He was curious enough, but no, there were no signs of fear. The next round of tests, the white rabbit was reintroduced, but this time a loud bang produced by striking a hammer against the steel bar caused Little Albert to jump. They would then repeat the sound every time he touched the rat. The child cried and attempted to crawl away. After repeating the process a few times, Albert, at the sight of the rat, began to cry and avoid touching it, also attempting escape. The data showed that by pairing the two stimuli, they created a fear of the white rat by connecting its presence with the jarring sound and memory of crying. In further experiments, Albert extended his fear to other things with fur. He didn't like the rabbit anymore, or the dog, or even a fur coat. I watched this film several times, and once my initial anger ran its course, I personally questioned everything the study was claiming. First of all, Albert was the only one in this experiment. He was the only one that this was done on. I mean, thank goodness, but it also proves Albert's suffering as that of one child, not what would happen to any child, much less every child. 
but also the parameters of the study were unclear. Is it the loud noise that made him upset, or could it be the tiring effect of Watson shoving stuff in his face for an extended period of time? I'd probably cry and try and crawl away too. And then the child disappears. From what I could find, they're saying that the mother snuck him off without telling anyone. Well, <laughs> that was that was the end of that. And what's worse, even though the findings weren't 100% accurate, which is why I really don't want to include them here, but I know everyone is going to ask, what happened to the baby? Well, there are two possible options. One, who is just going to infuriate you further, was said to be Douglas Merritt. His mother worked at the hospital where the experiments were held. If this is indeed little Albert, the entire testing slash trauma was for nothing because in spite of Dr. Watson claiming the child was normal and healthy, this child was showing symptoms of hydrocephalus since his birth. This is a congenital disease where the spinal fluid leaks into the brain and causes cognitive difficulties. It includes frequent crying and this child never learned to walk or talk before his death five years following the test study. He didn't die from the tests done, but from complications with the hydrocephalus. However, claiming that he was an infant that was healthy and stable and applying their findings to healthy and stable infants when he was not is fraud. This caused another child to be presented as a possible candidate for the little Albert, and that would be William Barger. He was born on the day after the Merritt child, and when they attempted to track him down despite living into his 80s, only his niece remained and could only offer that, yes, she thinks he was afraid of dogs, not very scientific or conclusive. What we do know is that while Watson's career tormenting random infants had come to a close, he chose to impose his theories on his own offspring none of which turned out so well. Three of his four children attempted suicide, with one succeeding, and his only grandchild, Marriott Hartley, you might recognize her from her acting in the 1970s and 80s. She would suffer from psychological issues which she attributes to her grandfather's influence on her child-rearing. He later regretted having written and published his beliefs, conceding that he, quote, didn't know enough. He burned most of his research, notes, and letters before his death in 1958, which deprived the scientific and psychological communities the benefits of his perhaps full-circle enlightenments. To this day, Watson is still considered to be one of the most cited psychologists of his time and the author of many books, and was also the editor of the Psychological Review for five years. He continued staunchly with his ideas and his work well into his senior years. He eventually found the perfect career for his behaviorist views, and that was in advertising. I may not be a world-renowned behavioral specialist, but I'm going to slip in a quick commercial break so I can go hug my children. You have my permission as a world-renowned author to do the same. Be right back. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi Deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. 
I aggressively campaign to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. The last study for this episode is the least harmful, in my opinion. And apparently, these days, the scientific community aren't really impressed with it anymore either. But, back in the 1960s, and then with the follow-up in the 1970s, the Stanford Marshmallow Test was the bomb. The basics of the test, created by Walter Michel, was a group of preschool children. They were put into a room by themselves, facing off with a big, fluffy, sweet marshmallow. Just sitting there, on a plate. Nothing between their little faces and this one little marshmallow. Here's the catch. The researcher would explain to them that they could either eat the marshmallow right now and be done, or if they could wait just a few more minutes, they'd be rewarded with a second marshmallow. Then she would leave them all alone and the clock would tick by probably the slowest it ever had for these 70-plus kiddos. The entire test was filmed, and let me tell you, it was adorable, and I could feel their pain at the same time. They kept notes on which of the children lasted, which ones gave in, and which ones nibbled their way to the finish line. And then, 10 years later, when the children were teenagers, The researchers went back to visit the children and asked them and their parents a series of questions. Some asked how they handled stress, how they did in their studies, how they handled self-control under pressure. They concluded that by encouraging self-control in their upbringing, that it would play a major part in a child's future success. They found that the children who were able to wait for the second marshmallow had higher SAT scores, lower levels of substance abuse, were less likely to be obese, and, according to their parents, had good social skills and self-control. The researchers believed that the test showed the link between self-control and success, thinking that having self-control as a child could indicate self-control as an adult and the ability to apply that towards their success. It reads in part, Quote, specifically children who were able to wait longer at age four or five became adolescents whose parents rated them as more academically and socially competent, verbally fluent, rational, attentive, and able to deal well with frustration and stress. End quote. The researchers came up with a hot and cool system to measure temptation, self-control, and even a touch of willpower. For example, all the way on the cool side, you wouldn't be tempted. Either you were distracted, 
or you could think forward to the longer term, or maybe you just don't like marshmallows at all that much. You don't have a problem with temptation. And at the other end, it's the hot side. This is where the temptation is too great. We become impulsive and set consequences aside. There were a few littles that didn't even make it until the researcher left the room before they pounced on that marshmallow. At this end of things, the pressure is too great. The need for instant gratification is strong. Logic does not work here. In 2018, the marshmallow test got a do-over, adding a few more diverse factors such as social economics, a child's environment, early cognitive ability, and family dynamic. This test also used the mother's educational background as a baseline. If the mother had a higher education, a college degree, the kids went into one group. With none or some, they went into another. This time, with more avenues opened up, the self-control wasn't the only indicator for success. The results indicated that children who come from wealthier homes were more consistent with being able to wait, whereas those who came from lower-income homes were more likely to indulge. The researchers believe that scarcity becomes a factor. Children who have to worry if they might not get another chance at a sweet treat were more likely to take the one that was right there in front of them, instead of taking the chance that it might not be there later. But the kids who come from secure homes knew that they could wait and it would be worth it. And even if it wasn't, their parents would be likely to take them out for ice cream after. During the 1930s, scientists, psychologists, and researchers would usually take their stance on either a nature or nurture side of the fence, staking their claim that one was more important or dominant than the other. These days, the experts acknowledge that both play a part in molding the mind and character of individuals throughout their entire life. So what do you think? Come on over to the Facebook page of Bag of Bones and let us know your opinion. Thank you so much for joining me this week and to Annabelle Bergman for her brilliant suggestion for this, our first episode in our second season. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be sure to catch every episode. Be sure to join me right here to find out what hauntings listener Jessamine Little requested. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. We're in our second year. I'm so happy. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises. Hey everyone, I'm Katie Bougere-Caldwell, creator of the Ragtag Network. The Ragtag Network is home to an eclectic assortment of podcast content such as Save Me an Isle Seat, Bag of Bones, Total Tomfoolery, and more. To find out more about us and the content we produce, check us out at www.ragtagnetwork.com. We look forward to your visit.